And you were the ECC-ites. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for feedback that we frequently get at ECC related to a lot of things. I get sermon feedback, positive and negative, and I really do appreciate both. Honest, I do. Um, on occasion, sometimes people will say something like, there was a great quote I wish I could, could have, and, and you'll send me an email. This week was one of those weeks a lot of people asked for a quote. So many people asked for a quote from last week's sermon that we actually posted it on the website under quotes and um, prayers, I think. There's a tab there. We just want to let you know we want to try to do that more often, use it more frequently. So if you go to eccbloomington.org, you can find things like that on occasion. Um, because even though I tweet, Twitter only allows you 140 characters. And you can't get much substance into that. I'm just saying. So um, we put quotes other places too. Yeah, sermon feedback is some of the things we get at ECC, but we get feedback on everything, you know, everything, really, everything. And it's okay. Um, this week, I got an envelope in my box. Um, I think it came through the mail, but now that I think back on it, I can't remember if I saw a stamp. All I know is that it was a large legal size envelope, and my name, Pastor Whitaker, and the address were typed boldly on the envelope. But there's no return address, and there was no handwriting, so as to make it as anonymous as possible. Well, the envelope was really bulky. It just had a big bulge in it, and I pulled it out of the box, and I looked at Lynn, and she said, yeah, I didn't know about that. I said, well, I guess I should open it, uh, but it does seem a little odd, so I stepped a little ways away from her desk. And I opened the envelope, and inside the envelope was this. <laughs> you know what? I, I just, first of all, want to say thanks, because it created a lot of humor in the office. We really enjoyed it. Second thing I want to say is thanks because I actually do shave just on this side and this side. <clears throat> so I'm going to use it uh, when my other one gets dull. Um, but yeah, just an example. We like all kinds of input. Um, today, uh, we're continuing uh, this series on ancient stories and contemporary truth and looking again at the life of Abraham as we did last week. Um, and today, the title of my sermon is Progressive revelation increases faith. Now, at the very outset, for those of you who are theological students, um, I want to make something clear. For those of you who are not, you can just ignore this, I guess, though I think it's important. I want you to know right up front what I mean by progressive revelation and what I don't mean. Here's what I don't mean when I say progressive revelation. Some assume revelation is a progressive self-discovery of truth by human beings. And since it's a progressive self-discovery of truth by human beings, it's necessarily riddled with error. And so, error is imparted to the written revelation because after all, it was human self-discovery. For that reason, progressive revelation can mean to some people something like this, that revelation is a collection of miracle stories that are wonderful, but they need to be demythologized. 
They're not necessarily real history, and you need to look at them as fables, and somewhere in there lies a deeper truth. I'm not saying that when I say progressive revelation increases faith. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying that we learn in stages. And God even accommodates our ignorance. We make mistakes, many, many, in following him. But still he accomplishes his will. We misinterpret the revelation of God and come up with some crazy, wild interpretations. But it's not the fault of revelation. It's our fault. Why? Because, well, quite frankly, we're dim-witted and often rebellious. And because we're dim-witted and rebellious, God actually uses the process of revelation to produce and increase faith in us. What do I mean? Let me give you an image. I don't like mathematics. As a kid, I wasn't good at it. As an adult, I'm still not good at it. However, I'm very grateful for my elementary teachers because you know what they didn't do? No teacher would be so foolish. They didn't start out on day one of a math lesson and try to convince me that I could learn long division. No, they started out with two plus two equals four. Once I got the principle of addition firmly planted in my head, and sometimes it was elusive and ran away, they introduced to me subtraction. And from there, I think the next step was multiplication. And from there, the next step was division. And from there, God forbid algebra, but we got there, right? It was all this progressive revelation for me concerning mathematics because I did not have the capacity, nor does anyone, to jump out ahead. Maybe in math some people are geniuses. But this I believe. In faith, no one is. And so God progressively reveals his will to us and allows us to make all kinds of foolish mistakes. Let me give you a little chart just to make it real clear about what I'm not saying and what I am saying. Here's what I'm not saying. First slide, I've entitled Humanistic Revelation. I'm not suggesting that humanity somehow figures out God. That's not the kind of revelation I'm talking about. It's not self-revelation. It's not me having an aha moment. It's not me with all my wisdom reaching up and somehow figuring out the mighty God of the universe. It's quite the opposite in the next slide. Biblical revelation is God condescending, speaking to me. And even though his condescension and his speech can be absolutely perfect, I can still mess it up. But I can't get the reverse order in my mind as if it is I who climb up to God. God condescends to us. He always has. As a matter of fact, that's the uniqueness of the Christian and Jewish faith. 
God condescends. It happens in Abraham. It happens with Moses. It happens throughout the whole New Testament. God speaks down, as it were, to his creatures. And we have the opportunity, as he continues to reveal himself, we have the opportunity to follow and to understand. So having said that, let's apply this principle to the life of Abraham. Quickly, we noticed last week that in chapter 12, Abraham heard the promise and left his family's heritage. And he went to Canaan. He left the promise and he went to Canaan. And when he arrived in Canaan, things weren't so good. At least not after a period of time, there was a huge famine on the horizon. What good's a promise? You know, a promise that God's going to bless you and increase your offspring and bless the whole world for you. What good's a promise if your family starves? Makes a lot of sense. So Abraham says, I can't inherit a promise if I'm dead. I think I'll go to Egypt. They've got food. He goes to Egypt, and while in Egypt, he makes a rather foolish decision that we talked about last week. He says that his wife, Sarai, is not his wife. She's actually his sister. That's to preserve his own skin. He preserves his own skin. As a matter of fact, inherits lots of wealth because Pharaoh really likes his new wife called Sarai. And then, you remember last week, we noted that the only time the voice of God ever came through and anybody ever heard it was Pharaoh? It was actually Pharaoh who heard the voice of God. Abraham was doing things on his own, and Pharaoh somehow got a revelation, and it was primarily because God inflicted him and his family with diseases that he was on the wrong side of things. And he called Abraham in and said, what are you doing to me? What did I do to deserve this? Take your wife and get out of here. She's not your sister. But getting out of there meant that Pharaoh dumped a bunch of blessings on him. So Abraham, foolish with decisions, holds on to the promise and escapes with not just his life, but with blessings. The next episode's in chapter 13. Abraham's with Lot in the promised land, and the herders of their cattle are in dispute over that land. It's quite a contrast to chapter 12, because in chapter 12, Abraham seems quite self-centered. At least this is my reading. In chapter 13, he seems rather selfless. In chapter 13, speaking of the promise, which must always be sort of omnipresent around him in his mind, he says to Lot, look, Lot, you take the best, you take to the right, or you take to the left. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. Implication is, Lot, take whatever you want, because God has given me a promise, and I'm going to trust him. So Lot takes what he wants, and Abraham goes the other way. And at the end of that episode, we notice in chapter 13 what happens. God reestablishes the covenant. Almost as if to say, Abraham, you followed me, you get it. Now I want to tell you again, I am your God and I will bless you. Chapter 14, something else happens. It's called the promise of the kings. The promise, uh, well, it encounters a bit of a challenge. Because in this land of Canaan, which Lot has found himself in and is prospering in, there's a bit of a war going on. And Lot gets stuck between kings who want to do bad things to other kings, and they're fighting, and you know how war goes, and Lot is a casualty. He's taken into captivity. Abraham, uh, like a good uncle, says, I can't allow that to happen. He gets together 318 of his fighting men, and he goes and rescues Lot. The other kings who were with Lot are really 
full of gratitude for what Abraham has done, and they say to him, Abram, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take the spoils. We want you to take all these things that are all ours because you've been a wonderful blessing to us by rescuing us. And Abraham says to him, no, I'm not going to take a thing. I don't want you or anyone else to ever be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, that sounds like a really grand thing to say, you know, a personal, magnanimous thing to say, and it is. But if you look at the text, at least the way I see it, again, my reading, yours may be different, there's something else going on here. Those kings were kings of the land that was promised to Abraham. And Abraham is, in effect, saying to the people who own the land, I don't need your help. I don't need your money. And as a matter of fact, I don't want to be responsible in any way for you supporting me, and I'm not going to take your land because God promised me the land, and I'm just going to trust him. You know what else he does in that episode? He does something else that becomes part of the tradition of the faithful people of God. One of the kings, strange king, named Melchizedek, that's later referred to in the epistle to the Hebrews, this king appears among those kings, and Abraham recognizes him as a special figure. He's not only a king of Salem, but he's also a priest of the Most High God, says the text. And Abraham gives him a tithe, 10% of all he has. It's another one of those indicators that Abraham gets it, that Abram says to himself, this is the land that God is going to give me. He's given me everything I possess, so I'm going to give back to him in return to this man of God a portion of what I own. It becomes part of the history of Israel. God asked for a tithe from the people of Israel and from his church from then on. A symbolic gesture that you own it all, God, and you will bless. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15 is the one we read. Chapter 15 is a curious story, isn't it? Odd if you remember it. You're wondering what's going on with all the animals, the birds, the heifer, the altar. Let, let's rehearse what happened. In chapter 15, God does it again. After Abram says, I am going to follow you, I'm going to be faithful, I'm not taking money from the kings of Canaan, God says, I'm going to bless you. I want to remind you of that. I've told you before, but I'm telling you again, you're mine, I'm going to bless you. You know what Abram does on this occasion? He says, thanks, God. I believe it. But how am I going to know? Thanks, God. I have faith. But honestly, let me tell you something. I'm kind of needy right now. I don't see it on the horizon. Can you say it a little louder? Can you give me a sign? And God says, sure. I want you to prepare a, a sacrifice. He prepares a sacrifice, and, and the, the heifers are cut in half and put on one side and the other. This is the only time, by the way, that God shows up in the text to Abraham by vision. It's curious because we try to figure out what the ceremony is all about. And the best we can tell from looking at ancient texts is this ceremony was used repeatedly by two parties in an agreement. Two parties would come together and they would pledge a trust to one another. 
And both those parties, after splitting in half a sacrificial animal, both those parties would walk through the halves of the animals, pledging to one another their trust. Or, as some texts say, to put it another way, they are saying symbolically to the other party, if I do not keep my promise, may this be done to me. If we take that image, which I think we have license to do, and try to understand it in the context of Abraham's faith and the context of what we see now, way out into the future in which we live concerning the Christian faith, I, I think there's something rich and powerful there. I want you to remember in the story, Abraham is fast asleep. Abraham, one of the parties to the promise, God the other. Abraham is stone dead asleep. And while he sleeps, a fiery pot appears and passes through the halves of the animal. What we do know is that routinely, a fire pot is representative of the presence of God. It's as though God is saying, Abraham, not only are you asleep, but you're never going to get it. Not only are you asleep, but you're a frail human being, and I know you're going to mess up. Not only do you not get it, I know you can't keep your part of the bargain. So I'm going to walk through myself. I take the covenant completely on my divine shoulders. I love the image because it reminds me of Jesus Christ. who says, here's the promise. It's called eternal life. Follow me, Bob. And I know you're going to mess it up. And so I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice for all your sin. And for that of the whole world, I'll walk through the sacrifice myself. Abraham wakes up from his sleep and all this has taken place. And right on the heels of that, we move into chapter 16. You know what happens in chapter 16? Abram and Sarai are still trying to figure out this thing called the promise of God. The first time they tried to figure this out and make a new plan was in Egypt. That was Abram's idea. And Sarai went along with it. Second time, they try to modify or fix the plan or make it better or do what they think they should do. Sarai comes forward. It's her idea. She says to Abram, look, Abram, I'm still infertile. We still don't have a child. God hasn't blessed me. That, that was a very typical understanding of fertility in that time. God either blessed the womb or he didn't. That's her understanding of things. She says, God hasn't blessed me. What are we supposed to do? I have an idea. Take my handmaiden, Hagar. Take her and sleep with her, and we'll have a child through her. And a lot of people, uh, in our particular contemporary context, rushed to a conclusion that Abram and Sarai were making a rather immoral decision, uh, a decision that was foolish, a decision that was not according to the will of God, a decision that fill in the gap. I don't think so. You know why? 
because there was nothing about Abraham's culture that would have said this was a bad thing to do. There was nothing about Abram's culture that said it was immoral. There was nothing about Abram's culture that said it was inappropriate. As a matter of fact, we have ancient texts that suggest that in situations like this, it was the legal obligation of the wife who was infertile to give her handmaiden to her husband so that they could have children. We revise this for our own purposes. Quite frankly, Abram was just trying to accomplish the promise. You say, but didn't Abram get a promise from God that through him and Sarai the promise would come? No. Up until now, read the text. You won't find a place. If this is the progressive revelation of God, all Abram has heard so far is this. Through your own body, the promise will come. Not a word about Sarai. It's implied, perhaps. It's assumed by him, perhaps, but it's never explicitly stated. So Abram, and I think Sarah, in good faith, say God is trying to accomplish his will another way. Let's let Hagar bear us a child. And of course, Hagar does bear a child. And you know the rest. Creates all kinds of problems. Terrible friction in the family. Terrible fighting in the family. A long history since then, if you play it out, of fighting between tribes. What about that decision? Was it unfaithful? I can't see it that way. Was it foolish? Yeah. Does that sound like you? Yeah. You know what's common uh, among all these stories? There's a promise, like, go to a new land, I'll give it to you. I'll bless you. Here's a sign to hold you up. There's a promise. And then, frequently, there's an obstacle. The obstacle is famine in Canaan. The obstacle is Lot and the kings. The obstacle is infertility. But then there's always another thing that happens after that promise, that obstacle, There's an advance. Somewhere after those stories, God always helps him to take the next step. He nudges him, pulls him, kicks him, prods him, does whatever he needs to do to save Abram. Keep walking with me. And Abram advances because God progressively reveals his will to Abram. And Abram has the faith to follow. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Really just... Three things. I believe, at least from my understanding of this text, I've determined that our faithful, unfaithful decisions are opportunities for us to return. I'm not saying sin so that grace can abound. I'm saying the best way to approach our unfaithful, sinful decisions is through the prism of the ancient tradition of the church called confession. When you understand your sinfulness, when you understand how unfaithful you have been, it's an opportunity for you to be renewed. It's an opportunity for you to cry out to God, confess your sins, and allow Him to restore you. That's what Jesus does. That's what He came for. 
Every act of unfaithfulness on your part is an opportunity to return. But not only that, every foolish decision, maybe not the unfaithful ones, just the dumb ones, every foolish decision on your part and mine is an opportunity to learn. Some people are really smart, and they learn without mistakes. I never did learn that way very well. I learned best with mistakes. It happens to me every day in so many different areas. I learn through those mistakes. And in the life of faith, that's exactly what we need to do. Those mistakes are opportunities to learn. There's a third thing. On the occasion where you're blessed enough to make wise decisions, those wise decisions They're just a window into the grace of God. Remember them? When you held fast, when you stayed faithful, when you walked through the storm, and you have a window, (laughs) it's like a rear view window of the grace of God. You say, oh God, that's what that was about. I see how you were trying to shape me. I see what a catastrophe I could have made if I'd have turned away. I get no credit for it, God. The wise decision that you enabled me to make is just a window into your abundant grace. You're always here. I think that's a story of Abraham in short. And I think it's your story if you'll embrace it. I like some old gospel songs that we never sing. They, they just come from, you know, way back, back when we had really wide collars and no ties and bell-bottom pants. I had some seriously good-looking clothes back then, I want to tell you. Remember those silk shirts? I had a shirt with the whole Bill of Rights all over it. It was, it was the coolest shirt. And... We had weird church, right? But those were good times. And this song, (laughs) this song comes from those good times. It's a song by Andre Crouch, and it's called Through It All. Remember the words? Some of you who are old as me. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation... God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. Last verses, I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys and I thank him for the storms he's brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. If you open your heart to God, that can be your song. If you see your unfaithfulness as an opportunity to return, you can experience the grace of forgiveness. If you see your foolish decisions as a way to learn, 
you'll become wise. And if you see those wise decisions that on occasion you've made as a window into the great grace of God, you'll be blessed. God is good. Let's continue to follow him. Will you pray? Lord, I thank you for your great grace. If uh, you numbered our sins, our transgressions, to use that old word, none of us could stand. But you don't. Instead, you stand in our place in the person of Jesus Christ. You assume the responsibility. It's mind-boggling, God, but you assume the responsibility for our sins. And through death, you pronounce death on death. And you promise a resurrection life for us spiritually right now and completely for us and for our world to come. We thank you for that great grace. We celebrate it, and we ask you to seal it to our hearts once again so that we can continue to follow you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.